Okay, pasa, pooches. Hola. I was thinking, how, how do you say yo or what up in, in, in Spanish? It's pathetic how little Spanish we speak, given how long we both live in California. Uh, let's get to it. Yeah. Uh, it's not every day we kind of get a London cybersecurity legend, you know, knighted by Her Majesty on the show, but I suppose there's a first for everything. Um, so we managed to get Aiden Fitzpatrick to agree to join us on the show. Now, he's considered somewhat of an expert in the field of like iPhone data recovery and forensics, and he was one of the first to really get past um apple security in 2008 at least when the first iphone came out and remained a leader in that field for a while um mm -hmm. he's also a pillar in the um london tech community super active in the angel investment scene uh you guessed it i met him on deck as well um yeah aiden aiden is a great. boss man aiden just has so much incredible information like locked in his head i wish we could have gotten him for like six hours and just hear everything he has to say but uh Dude, he's he's just a legend. And and by the way, the Queen uh, awarded him with the highest business honor twice. Like actually, he's not knighted. We were just saying that, but he, he was he was yeah. honored by the Queen twice. His work's been covered in like the BBC, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. He's been quoted like a ton. You know, Daily Mail called him a tech whiz. Computer Weekly called him a, a renowned mobile expert. Uh, he's been invited to speak at Google. I think the um, the. The interesting thing about him is like he's he's just like you mentioned he's been in the tech scene in london even before i was born which is actually the most mind-boggling thing and he's held like cto positions at very very big companies and most notably um wiggle so he became he was an investor and he became their cto through their 230 million dollar exit and um you know he doesn't he doesn't stop there he doesn't stop as being a vc or founder like he also works in like nonprofit and governance and he was um a a what, what was the long uh it, it was a very interesting position that i found on his linkedin recently but it was yeah chairman of the riverside safe neighborhoods ward panel for the metropolitan police so um he, he's, so he's, he's been around he's <laughs> like a very yeah he's a cop <laughs> um really. but he's he's yeah he, he's been around and i think the the one thing that the listeners are really gonna um pick up is like you don't pick any of that up when you talk to him he just seems like the most chill perfect guy ever yeah and like at any one time he's working on 200 different things so right now he's working on this product called camo which makes sure your your video um is absolutely top notch for whether you're doing like a youtube recording or or uh you're on zoom or whatever it may be and even while he was talking to us i was like blown away by his video quality so camo is like the real deal um mm -hmm. also he used to be cto of um arts pages uh supplying apple with like music uh, for the iTunes store and, and um, you know, ultimately he, he built uh, Norway's largest SAN at the time. Um, he's written, I don't know, like over 20 academic papers, things like iPhone 3GS forensics, uh, logical analysis using Apple iTunes backup utility, OS forensic investigative methods, overcoming forensic implications with enhancing, secu with, uh, enhancing security in iOS. I mean, really, he's just like the dude for cybersecurity. So I was like, I mean, it was incredible it that he all. actually agreed to sit with us. I couldn't believe he responded. But um, yeah. And on top of all that, he's actively investing. So he invests with uh, his firm called FitCap, F-I-T-C-A-P. Um, yeah. And he's he's invested in, I, I don't even know how many, like dozens of, of startups in London and elsewhere. Uh, like really a legend. So um, I really enjoyed speaking with the guy. He was, he was, he was incredible. Yeah, likewise. I mean, the, the, the thing is like, 
you know, being a first-time founder, not just a first-time founder, but a first-time CTO, getting to talk to someone who's been who has been a CTO longer than I've been alive, I think was, was the most amazing thing. And I think it's, it's another one of those cases where we had an episode where I'm, I'm, I'm sad. We didn't go like four to five hours and it was just one hour that we need that we, we just basically got to know him. Um, but yeah, he, he's, he's definitely the type of person that, you know, for someone in my position um, is not just a one time contact. Uh, yeah. You know, this, this is, this is going to be someone you're going to want to keep in your network. And um you know, and you can notice this in the episode, but pure wisdom every time he talks. So yeah, absolutely. We're totally dragging him out for kebabs next time we're in London. Anyhow, let's stop oh, yeah. boring people. Uh, let's cut to the interview. Yep. Yeah. Aiden Fitzpatrick, I've been waiting to do this one for a while. So you like some of other uh, some of our other guests, uh, we met at on deck also on deck angels. Um, I was totally blown away by your background. Uh, it appears you are a mini celebrity according to UK laws, but we'll get into that a little more later. Uh, and one oh, interesting no. tidbit, <laughs> one interesting tidbit, uh, uh, for folks who have not looked you up prior to this episode dropping, uh, you've received her majesty, the queen's highest business honor twice. Now our internal research says that makes you the Duke of something or another. So Mo, if you can get up and curtsy real quick as a sign of respect. Oh, Absolutely. Let me let me just mute real quick because my chair is like squeaky as hell. <laughs> Not that a curtsy, textbook. but we'll go with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Aiden, you have a super in- interesting background, and I'd love to go on for like twenty minutes just giving people a preface before we get into it. But I'm not going to steal your spotlight. Um, we just want to know first off a little bit about yourself, how you got into computers, and what really got the entrepreneurship bug to bite you. Thank you. Well, Aziz Mo, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I've been, I've really been looking forward to this. Uh, I, I got into computers because I was uh, really sort of rough and tumble as a child. I was into the outdoors, football, running around, that sort of stuff. But when I reached the age of 11, my eyesight started to fail and it got very bad very quickly. And I had this traumatic experience with a school nurse where she came in and, you, you know, you look at the chart or you read the letters and it turned out I really couldn't see very much at all. And I hadn't realized this. Uh, but anyway, I, I ended up being prescribed a set of very thick glasses that got sort of repeatedly broken in rough and tumble sports over a period of about six months before I realized that I could no longer do rough and tumble sports and I had to seek out other things to do. And I got very much into reading and I spent a lot of time in a school library. I read a lot of fantasy books. That became a very big thing for me. Uh, and I ended up befriending uh, a chap called Andrew, who is working with me uh, in the company now. He's the co-founder of Reincubate. And Andrew was into computers. He knew how to program the BBC and the Acorn computers there. He taught me basic. Uh, and that, with him, really started my programming journey. So I, I got into basic, Pascal, Delphi, Visual C, all of these funny languages. But we'd go to the computers in the school library hack them, make them do very strange things. That was that was fun for us. And so we'd sort of build these elaborate programs that did all, did all sorts of odd bits and pieces. But, but that really got me on a, uh, an engineering course. I was an engineer for the first half of my career, later a CTO. And I never really thought entrepreneurship was something that was just sort of accessible to regular people. I thought it was reserved for a different type of person, and that it wasn't just something you could sort of opt into. It was like maybe being a banker or a lawyer, it wasn't something that 
you could do. You maybe had to be born into it or have family connections. And of course, it, it turns out that isn't true. No one told me that. But I figured it out uh, when I was quite a bit older. And really, I got there because as an engineer, I'd loved working with founders and I loved their product vision and their, their desire to make things. And it, it, I think it really just happened through osmosis. Interesting. So, I mean, you were also one of those people who happened to start a business or attempt to start a business when you were exceptionally young. Yes, yes. Although, I mean, technically it's entrepreneurship, I suppose. I certainly didn't see it that way then. I saw it as Gosh, I love building websites. Maybe I can build some websites for people. Uh, the, the consequence of doing that is probably that they'll end up giving me money. But I remember building a website for a company that did paintballing. I did that over the weekend. They paid me 500 pounds, which is, I don't know, was that 750 bucks? That was in the late 90s for a weekend when you're a teenager. That's good money, or it was then. Uh, and I help people build databases and intranets. No one talks about intranets anymore. I think we have wikis, but I would build them with Microsoft Access and I'd build sort of these basic programs. So something I did for a, a couple of companies is a lot of machines weren't running Windows then. They were still on DOS, sort of, you know, black screen and the text and the typing in all the commands. So I would build these menu apps. So the screen would say, you know, press, press one to load this program or press two to load that program. So their staff didn't have to know DOS commands, which seems very simple now, but uh, yeah. it was a lot of fun. And, and, and yeah, that, I suppose that, that was what I started with, with the first business. Interesting. Yeah, I was, I was going to sort of chime in and say, so at, at the time, I think, and, and not to jump too far ahead in your career, but how was it in terms of um, accessibility to work on something like that early on in your career versus doing something like that right now? I, th I think then it, it really helped to know, it really helped that I found Andrew and Andrew was my friend because I was able to, to learn from him. There was certainly a lot of figuring it out on, on your own or figuring it out on our own, a lot of trial and error. And people were very kind and supportive to us, which was nice. And, and it was also an era when you could buy a computer magazine in a shop and a computer magazine would have source code in it. So mm. I remember getting magazines for the Commodore 64, and there'd always be a couple of pages of basic and peek and poke codes in the back. And I think things are a lot more sophisticated now. But I see where we have uh, you know, younger contractors that join with us or, or people that come and work on special projects for six weeks. I, I, I'm not entirely sure what the equivalent is now. It might be building bots. It might be doing stuff around crypto or Web3. So I think it's changed a lot. And I think there's, there's, there's probably a lot more online, but I suppose if, if you were going to do what I did and become sort of a, a, you know, a more fundamental software engineer, I'm not sure if that's a huge amount easier to sort of get very much hardcore. I mean, there, there are a lot of sort of programming base camps and, and boot camps and that sort of thing, but to really get it into the code, I imagine still probably is quite an intense job that takes a lot of time and there's so much sophistication in so many libraries you know i mean a lot of people are using typescript or javascript now and there are, there's so much complexity around it and that stuff didn't exist then so yeah. in in the 90s uh you know everyone made a big deal of like just kind of the the garage computer club and homebrew culture that was alive in silicon valley now i was 
you know, at most like eight, nine years old at the time where I would be invited to basically a kid's version of that, which was like adult nerds bringing their kids together to build. Remember like the hardware Legos, the kinds you can program with like this very basic language Lego put together um, on, on a Mac. Um, so that was how I really kind of got into the hardware and software side of things. And that was, that's what was happening very distinctly in the US. Whereas for the adults, it was still, you know, the homebrews and garage computer clubs. And sometimes they were kind of attached to universities. What was that scene like in the UK in the 90s? Again, this is like pre massive tech boom that occurred over the last 10, 15 years. Hmm. Well, I wasn't really a part of that. Uh, I, you know, I, I, it was just uh, my mother raising me and she wasn't in tech and we were in the sort of rural countryside. So I was in the middle of nowhere in a small school trying to figure this out myself. And it wasn't until I started working and indeed the, the first dot-com boom happened that I, that I ended up going up to London and, and meeting a much broader set of people who, who were into this. I had been online but I think a lot of my activity online was sort of around fan clubs and around projects that I was building rather than communities of engineers. I don't know why that was in, in, in hindsight, but I, I feel like I didn't, I didn't really connect with engineering people online until I really began my sort of career in earnest and people were, you know, I had a job. So just for clarification, when, when you said you didn't really connect with engineers online, who were when you first started getting into this as a hobby or as a passion? Who were the people that you find you found yourself normally like gravitated towards? Well, I, I suppose really when I was at school and college, it, it was my peers and it was the the teachers and the support staff. So something that was very helpful for me was I ended up being employed, if you can call it that, by both my school and my college. And when I say college, I don't mean the U.S. college. I mean what we call it in the U.K. We are. 16 or 17 or something like that. And I was sort of paid pin money to hang around in the evenings and weekends to set up servers or set up a, 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 an ISDN line, uh, which is a very kind of slow form of, uh, I mean, you guys know what it is, but it's just a very slow internet connection, right? That doesn't exist anymore. I was Googling uh, a lot of these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm part of the new new breed of, of founders and CTOs that got in when, when we had the Google Clouds and the AWSs, so. I'm uh, right, right. not good. I'm kind of familiar. Don't not 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 googling yet, but we'll see. <laughs> Aiden and I were like, we had to mine of- copper, like <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the, I suppose there there were a bunch of people around me who knew more, uh, you know, in the educational establishments who who really kind of humoured me, and you know, gave me work over my school holidays. I went to work at a, at a web design company. I went to work at a company that made 3D modeling software. I did a bunch of things like that. And I made a lot of cups of tea and tried not to get too intimidated by these grown-ups who, who knew amazing stuff. And I guess eventually I figured it out. Aiden, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. So I may be oversimplifying here, but your career really took off when a happy accident kind of made you a cybersecurity expert with respect to iPhones in particular. I think that's fair to say. In, in terms of yeah. my entrepreneurial career, yes, yes. I um, what did they they say about Twitter? Uh, is it Mark Zuckerberg said he sort of drove drove the clown car into a gold mine and both doors fell off? Uh, <laughs> you know, my, the start of my entrepreneurial journey wasn't quite like that, but uh, you know, I, I I did sort of accidentally stumble across that business uh, in the sense that I built a product for myself. I had. Uh, upgraded my iPhone to iOS 2 and it deleted my data. So I built a product to get that data back. And 
essentially, I ended up putting the script that I'd built online uh, and people would download it, write to me for help. How do we we use your script? Because it was a command line script, which, you know, ordinary people weren't going to use. But they had lost their data, so so it, essentially, I ended up putting a price on it and said, "Look, if you if you PayPal me twenty five bucks, I'll send you this program, help you get your data back." And long story very short, within the first eighteen months, I'd been sent about a million bucks for that, and so that was really the start of the business uh, and, the, and the start of that set of product, and and that was a heck of a way to start. I mean, that that was at the time, I think ninety seven percent net margin, and my entrepreneurial career in net margin terms has only gone down from there. <laughs> so, so how did we go from just that script for, for 20 bucks via PayPal um, to the full business materializing? And then you ended up working for some of the clients you ended up working for again, trying to not steal your limelight. <laughs> well, so obviously people started buying the program and getting value from it. So I had to build a team around that and we had to understand where we went next, you know, clearly we were onto something. There's a problem that people were losing their data and they needed help getting it back. So first of all, it was a very innovative product. It was, it was the first product that could recover data from iPhones in this way. And over the years, it became much copied. And we saw sort of the smartphone forensics industry spring up around it. One of the decisions we took fairly on was not to move into forensics. And moving into forensics would have been more profitable. Uh, I mean, it's quite a different business, but my view at the time and my view now is that forensics ultimately trends into monetizing oppression, or at least it's very difficult not to. Because we started off with this product and we would, you know, anyone would buy it. And, and because there weren't other products out there, you know, we would have the police buying it, we'd have government buying it, we'd have security services buying it, uh, as well as a lot of ordinary people. And over time, as the forensics uh, competition sprang up, there was less of that. But what we did certainly have was we had a lot of governments and sort of security apparatus reaching out to us with requests that seemed problematic and which over the last 10 years have become much more widely publicized. And it was very clear to us that we did not want to deal with those governments or those security services. Um, so our focus was very much on uh, people recovering their own data that they had lost or deleted, rather than providing tools to say, I- I- extract or surveil data from devices that weren't controlled by one. So we ended up working, you know, with, with a lot of blue chip companies and uh, at the very start with, with all sorts of, of law enforcement. And indeed we, we, we still, we still have some clients in that space, but we're, we're very, very clear that forensics is, is not our bag and it's not something we're interested in doing. So in, in the type of work that you will do, because you don't have concerns about who the counterparty is, uh, hmm. Is there anything you can share with us in terms of what you end up finding or what the use case is? Yeah, so there's been all sorts of things. Uh, we, we hear stories about people who've you know, lost uh, photographs of their child's first birthday or of the last period of time with a deceased grandparent. We've helped people recover crypto wallets that had a fortune in them where their phone got erased. That's quite a popular one. 
Uh, we've helped you know people who who perhaps are sole traders and have a lot of important business records on their phone. They've been deleted. We've helped them get them back. And you know certainly we have worked for a, a lot of very big companies as well. In the early days, possibly some some of the things that we saw were more uh, sensational. You know, before there was a forensics industry, a smartphone forensics industry around us, I remember the police would, you know, certainly the US police in particular, would send us content where there were sort of pictures of men with gunshot wounds or holding, you know, bags of drugs or sitting with piles of cash and stuff like that. And we, you know, that was when we were really like, we've got to accelerate away from this because, we, you know, I don't want to be exposed to that content. I don't want my colleagues to be exposed to that content. But I, I think that may be made for better stories, that part of the business. I mean, then you get the story of those, uh, you know, Facebook fact checkers who see horrific things and end up with PTSD. And I'm sure that's not what you signed up for when you were 11 years old and picking up basic. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And and we, we, we also moved very quickly away from getting involved with the recovery to providing software that just that just did it for people so it, it really was a case of you know if, if you've lost access to photos contacts messages we can help you get that back we have you know we have an enterprise side of the business as well where companies that have fleets of devices that that need to you know need to pull data off that perhaps because they have a sales team and they want to pull content from the sales team's phone into a sales crm you know, there are a lot, of, a lot of use cases like that which are um, much less exciting sounding but still plenty valuable and plenty useful. Yeah. I, I had a quick question about that. So, so from a founder's perspective, I, I, I suppose the the fun part of pursuing any venture, whether it's a big one or a small one is just to speak a little freely, like pissing off the, 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 the establishment, if you will. I think like if, if you're trying to go after something and fixing something, that's a norm that just like adds to the thrill of, of, of starting something and, and working long hours on it. So I guess in this case, who would you say was the Goliath that you were going after or you're trying to fix, basically? That's a good question. I suppose in, in building a new product, we weren't trying to displace someone who was, uh, you know, building a similar product. What we were doing was initially shipping something around a use case that Apple hadn't catered for. And Apple was for a long time, the, sort of the Goliath in that relationship, because we, we would, we, as I said, we, we were dealing with something they didn't cater for. But Apple's movements over time with iTunes-based backups or iCloud-based backups and the services around that and where the data was at rest and how it was stored had a material impact on what we did and what our product looked like. And Apple sometimes did things that were helpful for us and sometimes uh, has done things that, that, that were unhelpful. And, and so there's there's sort of been a long course of my building relationships and seeking to influence Apple or partner with them in various ways over the years. That, that's That's been a very big part of that. I mean, Apple is definitely the gatekeeper. I mean, th there are multiple examples I can think of with startups that I was either invested in or involved in where uh, uh, basically an executive decision by you know, Apple's internal monarchy decided to kill a business and there's pretty much nothing you can do in terms of the appeal. So there's a running joke that with between Mo and I, whereas if we talk long enough in front of a microphone, someone's going to say something about crypto. So with Web3, how does that go. change? The, Here we go. Oh, yeah. We, lo we lost the bet. Anyways, so with Web3, how does that change the implications of, uh, you know, security with respect to handheld devices? Like, you know, with every phone being 
uh, equipped with like a wallet enabled uh, browser or pretty soon, you know, chat apps built on Solana or whatever it may be. What does that mean for uh, both forensics and, 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 you know, iOS security going forward? I guess I should say I'm I'm not a crypto guy. Uh, I, I mined Bitcoin in 2012. I, I bought quite a bit in 2013, and I've sort of poked around with NFTs and on discords. But I I would say I'm not close to the beating heart of crypto. I have kept an eye on on Rich Burton's campaign to get Apple to add ECDSA uh, to secure Enclave so that iPhones can can do this natively and and. Uh, you know, I'm excited to I'm excited to see that. I suppose we would see more wallets uh, being based on iOS devices, and where you see those hardware wallets, you know, there's always a need to back up a seed phrase offline, and I don't think that happens a lot. Or I think those seed phrases get lost, and and I think from the volume that we see, you know, if if, if people are putting their wallets and the the existence and only existence of, of monetary value on their phones, I think they're going to lose it. Now, that that then gets you looking at backups. And I suppose there are similar things already because there are some wallets, some smartphone wallets that will store the wallet uh, on an iPhone and that won't include the wallet on a backup for security reasons. So you really are in a lot of trouble if you destroy your phone or if you migrate to a new iPhone every year, don't realize that you haven't migrated the wallet file or the private key and destroy the old device. So, I mean, I, I, I just, I, just can't, I can't imagine Apple would, would enable something so fundamental without a lot of other protections around it. I, th- I think as crypto becomes more environmentally sound and we see Ethereum 2 arising and sort of proof of stake rather than proof of work leading the way. I think crypto is going to be a much more positive thing. But so much has to change in the ecosystem because so many things are so hard and fiddly and technical and massively unforgiving. Uh, you know, I, I guess there's a lot of focus on, hey, you can accidentally send your money to the wrong people and you can never get it back. I, I think if, if iPhones more fundamentally enable storage of crypto and being a sort of a first-party wallet, then oh goodness, stuff's stuff's going to break, and people are going to lose their money. But yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll it'll get dealt with, right? Of course. Yeah, I, yeah. I was going to add. I was I was going to add and say kind of like w- another thing we like to do here is kind of look at parallels in like recent or, or past history. And the the funny thing is like we've kind of realized this trend in technology where it starts off in a very tiny community, and there's a lot of risk involved in it because everyone involved in it has a passion and they know exactly how this thing works and exactly what not to do because there's conventions and kind of shared wisdom as to what not to do to break this thing. Um, you know, when in the early, early nineties or, or eighties, when, when even everything that we're using now, our devices were just very up in the air. This wasn't like a massive consumer thing where anyone can pick it up and use it easily. Um, Eventually, as it started hitting consumers who didn't really know about the underlying technology, um, engineers and, and entrepreneurs basically went hard at work putting these safeguards in place. Is that a trend that you think is going to happen with more, like with Web3 specifically? So now everyone I've spoken to that, that's had a wallet um, or that has like a hardware wallet or, or just any sort of wallet to, to um, store cryptocurrencies of any sorts, um, the number one thing they know is that you know 
they're usually type kind of like literate in terms of security. Um, if I were to take this and give it to a friend of mine who is some other non-technical trade, they wouldn't even know how to work with it. There's so many options and currencies and blockchains, they'd just be so confused. Um, do you kind of see, with with your knowledge of like everything going on right now, do you see people eventually headed in that direction? Yeah, I would say I do. I am very bullish on crypto long-term, I would say, but I am not massively bullish on it short term. I think so much needs to change. And I suppose when, when you take Aziz's question, I guess if if crypto is broadly, is widely stored on people's phones, then all of a sudden hacking iCloud accounts and finding zero days and snatching people's phones in restaurants maybe starts to become a lot more valuable. Because there was, there was that initial wave where that was a thing and stealing phones was valuable. And so Apple uh, built out activation lock and then they built out find me and there are a whole lot of protections around this. But of course the, the value of those devices hasn't really increased. You know, it, it's still around a thousand bucks plus the value of the data on there because there isn't currency on them. But if right. the average Joe has got a bit of money on there as well, it becomes a very different proposition, doesn't it? And I think in order, Apple tend to take quite a paternalistic approach. I, I, I don't think they will accept this proposal until they have spent, uh, until they know what the product would be from their perspective. I, I don't think they're going to enable people to build stuff that could lead to those sorts of problems for Apple. Apple don't want people to steal their phones. They don't want that incentive. Apple, Apple don't want someone to have that sort of experience. It's like, hey, I put five grand on my phone and now it's gone. And here I am in the Apple store giving an Apple genius a hard time because Apple lost all my crypto like that. Yeah. yeah they're not going to let that happen. Yeah. On a side note, um, Mo's uh, seed phrase is battery display. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I will I do that like to him. Quickly pick up like my trust wallet and double check. No, no we're good. Okay. <laughs> the words. I only need the other 22. <laughs> That's a good point. Just try well, has no money anyway, there. so it's fine. Yeah, uh, that too. <laughs> so I, I, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about like the actual ecosystem you're operating in. Most of the folks we talk to, just by virtue of where we are usually, they're in the MENA ecosystem, which is very new, basically did not exist 10 years ago, um, or the US ecosystem, which is the OG. Um, where does the UK stand exactly in terms of the vintage year of its ecosystem's birth? And where is it right now? Like, you know, for the outsider, what are the five things you need to know if you're looking at the UK right now in terms of what's happening in the ecosystem? It's, it's a good question. I, I think we, we had a golden age in 2006, 2007 in the UK. And, and I think that that sort of correlated or corresponded with a golden age in, in San Francisco as well. I think that was when I sense that was when people sort of started coming out up out of the valley towards San Francisco. And we saw, I mean, obviously my accommodator is in the valley, but you know, that and then Betaworks on the East coast appeared and you know, we saw things like Twitter appear in the UK. We had, we had something similar, you know, I remember going to events in Shoreditch and around what we call Silicon roundabout. And there was Alex Chu and Michael Acton Smith, and they built a couple of businesses, but now they're doing calm.com, which obviously is in, in the States. Uh, there was quite a lot of involvement from TechCrunch. I remember, you know, you could easily kind of bump into Mike Butcher or Benedict Evans, of course, went to Andreessen Horowitz. 
I think London has matured and there is more money available. But I also feel that maybe there's less community. I feel like there was a lot of mobility to the States. I think a lot of people went to the States. Um, a number have since come back. I think something that's very helpful in the UK are some you know, slightly smaller groups. I mean, there's a guy called Charlie Ward who runs Weekend Club, and he's got a slack around that. He's just this most incredibly kind of welcoming guy. And he's got this whole kind of community of indie hackers. There are a few people like that who are, who are sort of doing things in London. I think also something that's happened is we had a move towards fintech. So there's a bunch of funding and accelerators around fintech. It's not really a space I'm in. I think that set us up quite well for crypto. And I think we've got quite a lot happening in crypto, but I'm not really very close to the crypto or fintech community. So this kind of, there was definitely a point where there were kind of 50 people doing stuff and they would meet up, you know, every weekend and go and have some drinks. And, and I think, I think London is a bit too big for that now. I think we've passed that point. Around 2013, 14, when I was talking to tech people in Boston, first of all, the first thing they would do is complain about how the, the region is kind of overtaken by biotech more so than anything else. Uh, very true also 2013, 14, before you know all the newbies started setting up and Toast and the rest of them. Um, but when they would talk about New York, they would say like, oh, that's where fintech is at. You just go to New York if you want to be in fintech, but for any other tech, you need to move to San Francisco. Now, you can tell by the nature of that statement, it is incredibly dated given what's happened in New, in New York as of late. What catalyzed that was the pandemic, obviously. Um, so nothing of the like happened in London. There weren't people moving in droves. I mean, I guess Brexit hurt that a little bit, but that's a different discussion. Yeah, a lot of people came to London and there are a bunch of programs um, Struggling to remember the names of some of them, but there, there's uh, EF, they do a lot. There's Antler VC doing a bunch of things. There are some seed programs. There is Tech Hub, uh, and, and indeed Google has a startup campus. There's a whole lot of activity. I think, you know, we, we had the double whammy of, uh, of Brexit uh, and then, you know, now of, of the pandemic. And I think that's sort of been quite unsettling. I think with Brexit, a bunch of things maybe got harder here. And that still has to be sorted out. Uh, but I think then with the pandemic, you know, it's maybe tempting for people to to travel and to be elsewhere. I think with Brexit, it's like, okay, what well, what is the UK's strongest industry? Well, I think is you know it, it might well be finance and banking. There's been a lot of talk around that. So, yeah, I, I think I think it had an effect. I think those two things had an effect. I think the. So, so the funny thing that that I kind of noticed looking at the history of like tech in the U.S. is, you know, pretty much it, it was very much a trial and error approach. Of there was okay, let, let's throw money around and see what works, and then eventually they kind of realized that fintech and prop tech and all all those different industries that have popped up do work. Um, I think that kind of goes back to when I was first starting and me being a first time founder. I heard a lot about the term, the Silicon Valley mentality, mentality of you just want to put stuff just to grow or just why not throw, throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. Um, that's, that's kind of a mentality that I see with a lot, of, a lot of VCs in the US that I talk to and me being based in Los Angeles, I do get a lot of that Silicon, Silicon Valley, like, let's see what happens. Let's screw it. Let's just go for it type of mentality. How do British VCs or the VC ecosystem in, in the UK kind of stack up against that. I, I I guess where I where I struggle with the contrast is, 
maybe I mean, clearly I am British. I'm building a bit a business in Britain as well, but I don't. I, I'm not sure. I really, particularly with the investing that I do, I'm not sure I consider myself a British investor. And I think I, I see. You know, I'm involved with Ondek, which is an international organisation. I'm involved with a group called the Entrepreneurs Organisation, which itself is international. I, I think I probably spend more time having conversations with American or international entrepreneurs and investors than I do British ones. Uh, and I think there's a real, yeah, I, I, I think where I kind of talk to people who are super networked, the, the geographical element ten, tends to be less significant. So, you know, in the, in the UK, I, I do, where, where I talk to British entrepreneurs, you know, some of them are quite a bit less networked. I, I guess that's easier in the States. I, I think in terms of investors in the UK, I mean, I guess there are, couple of types, aren't there? There are the bigger funds that are European or US focused and have also set up here. So it's like a satellite and they're focused on this country. Um, and then there are really kind of ambitious firms that have set up here and are looking abroad. And, and I think they, I, I, I think geography has really been leveled in the last couple of years, right? Deals have exploded, valuations have exploded. Uh, I, I think if you want to get in on those deals, you've got to behave like there's now an international standard, which is the American standard, isn't it? Right. You're going to, you're going to get that crazy post Y combinator demo day, $25 million seed valuation. And you're in that, or you're not in that now, maybe five years ago, it was quite different. And if you wanted to get that seed money in the UK and you were asking for a million quid, that would be a tall order. But I, I think that's changed so much because if you're an entrepreneur, you don't want to style yourself as, hey, I'm just in the UK and I'm just looking for British venture. You probably want to be using Stripe Atlas, incorporating in Delaware, or at the very least, you know, if you incorporate in the UK, raising money from out from, from, from further west. So I, I guess that I think that distinction has been eroded. Yeah, the exodus from San Francisco. Sorry, the, the exodus from San Francisco has exported that mindset elsewhere. Um, you know, people would joke that in, in Boston, uh, if you were raising a round or in New York City five years ago, they'd want to see like 10 years of financials. Uh, they'd want your historicals audited by KPMG and they'd want ridiculous traction. They want like Series C level traction to write you, write you a seed check. Whereas in San Francisco, it's like, hey, can you scribble your name on a napkin and maybe fog this mirror a little bit and I'll give you a million dollars in cash? Cool. And the, the idea... Um, you know, every time I see these videos of like, you know, a VC talking to non-VCs for the first time in an academic setting, they always bring up things like the Pareto principle, uh, you know, the 80-20 distribution of returns, yada, yada. And they say it like it's this massive revelation that's never dawned on anyone outside of VC. And to a degree, when you're raising money, you discover it's true, especially when talking to people who have not invested in the VC asset class before. And that was very prevalent outside of the Bay Area. Um, that you know, throw caution to the wind type mentality has definitely left its permanent home of San Francisco over the last few years. And to the UK's credit, I've definitely seen it, uh, you know, to a degree begin to crop up in London. Uh, you know, the old school investors will always argue that this is, you know, just recklessness. It's a waste of capital. It's, it's uh, contrary to the concept of fiduciary duties. Um, whereas the actual investors who've been around the block are telling you that, no, this is the way we make sure we don't miss the thousand X return that, you know, mathematics, the mathematics work out at the end of the day, the fund has returned itself five times over. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's reasonable. I think that, that there's there's something that I've sort of got in my head around networked or under-networked founders. And I think where I'm pitched and talk to founders with a view to investing and they don't have that sort of US or global standard attitude, that sort of becomes a, a maybe not a red flag, but certainly a flag that requires digging into. Because on one hand, it's nice, huh? You know, here's here's a business raising with one or $2 million valuation in 2021. That's pretty cool. Is this an opportunity? But then you've got to ask, well, you know, why, why are they not taking the other approach? You know, maybe it's nice that they don't, but is is this a lack of awareness or is, is this, you know, is this a lack of kind of network or relationship building that's exposing itself in this approach? So there's certainly some thought required around that, I think, when you see those traditional valuations. For me, yeah. at least when I was investing in the Middle East, North Africa region, the the biggest tell was the name. If the name was so extremely local that if you if you drove two hours, it made absolutely no sense. You knew that they did not have the growth mindset. You know, it's like uh, if somebody started something in the UK and, and called it like you know the off license, which will make no sense to anyone outside. You know, as if it was a grocery app of some kind. But um, um, th- those examples usually are like the immediate red flag to me, and usually you don't discover this until again you start looking at the valuation assumptions or talking to the founders. Yeah, Aziz and I actually had a conversation about this in a previous episode about um, specifically about the media region, but I think it applies to the UK as well, where it's what does it take for there to be a large domestic incumbent? And, you know, we've seen some in the UK, of course, but not not so much in the media region just yet. Um, and I think the number one thing that the number one conclusion that both of us came to is um, they need to have two traits specifically. So they need to be able to solve a global problem, uh, not one that's like, constrained or limited by any geography. Um, and then more importantly, they need to be able to export technology. So if it's just a services company, it's not enough of an incentive to become a large incumbent. It just needs to be um, very tech or, or, or engineering heavy specifically. And that's, you know, in, in the US at least, and in the MENA region where I kind of have, Aziz and I have a, a few um, nodes in our network, if you will, um, that's, that's the sort of pattern that we're seeing of people are no longer going, well, we need delivery services. So we're going to build out a delivery service here. They're going, um, every single developer in the world has this issue and I'm going to build this based in Kuwait or based in Los Angeles, solving this global issue. Um, and you know, is, is that a trend that you're kind of noticing in the UK as well, or just like speaking to your local network or your community? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I suppose. You know, I suppose the country of the business shouldn't be a defining factor, right? And unless there's some unique advantage you get from saying, "Hey, it's it's made in Britain, or it's designed in California, or you know, it's something to do with Switzerland, or something like that." I, I think if you can get some leverage or some value or some moat from that, it's worth doing. But there are very few markets, very few sort of local markets that are big enough to really scale a business in, you know, I I guess if you are building a business in the States, maybe you can have a domestic business and maybe you can scale it quite well. But certainly in a a country like Britain, you know, we've got 60 million, 65 million people in this country. We we have to sell it abroad, right? We we almost certainly have to sell it to people that, that don't speak English because it might be easier for us to go east into Europe. I mean, you know, maybe... Sure, a lot of them speak English, right? But it's not necessarily the first language in many of those countries. 
but yeah, I, I think when you do see those hyper-local seeming businesses or businesses that kind of anchor around a geographical identity, it's certainly unhelpful. Uh, one thing I was doing in back in 2007, one of the consulting projects I had, I got involved helping founders raise money and get early stage tech right. I thought, oh, this is a good idea. You know, Y Combinator and Beatworks were just coming up and I thought I could do something similar. And I realized, of course, that I had completely thrown into the stick because the ability to get early stage tech right and raise money is absolutely a core competency for an entrepreneur. And by definition, the only people that I could help were you know, more likely to be the people that would kind of face obstacles that they might struggle to overcome. And, and that certainly struck me that I could flip that on its head and kind of look at their capability to do those things as a, as a criteria for future success. Um. I wanted to ask, so uh, FitCap, your investment arm, um, you've stated that you only back what's called values-based businesses. Now, I've heard that defined many ways. And honestly, it's just one of those things where naturally a definition changes from person to person and culture to culture. What does it mean to you and how has it driven your investment decisions? Maybe It maybe sounds preachier than it is. <laughs> I, I, I rate values because I think it's very helpful to know who you are um, what you're about. And I think that when building a business and in general with life is maybe more important than knowing what you're doing. Because I think what you're doing changes over time. Maybe we'll change in a business as you pivot or as you try and find fit. But who you are and your values and what you believe and how you act are really a set of guide rails that kind of fit those things. And, and if you're well aware of them, you will have an easier life and you will have an easier time making those decisions. But you will also find it easier to find customers and investors and partners and have more fruitful relationships with them. So it's not so much that I'm looking to find a particular set of values or, or that I have a particular position, that, that there are a set of beliefs that I want people to have. You know, it's not, it's not a... Uh, it's not code or uh, you know a dog whistle for some particular thing that I'm looking for. It's like oh, I I want to work with people who know who they are, and who are clear about who they are. And and it may well be true that in being clear about who they are, it's like oh well this you know I maybe I this this doesn't fit so well with what I want. But uh, yeah, I, I think it makes it makes my life as an investor easier certainly. So what are the most notable investments you've made? Well, in the UK and outside of the UK as of, as of recently? Yeah, so uh, an unusual one for me recently was a business called Solo60, uh, which is essentially a pandemic-era business with private gyms. So the gym is all your own, and you book the whole thing out. So I, you know, this, this come through my own uh, my own sort of, habits around working out you know I, I was an avid gym goer i was very very wary about the pandemic and also a bit uncomfortable in broader gyms anyway i i have a set of recurring injuries like i have a back injury so you know i'm quite a big tall guy but i'm i'm not very strong and i always kind of felt self-conscious about having to have a belt or kind of lift the lighter weights and I just enjoyed the opportunity to have my own space to work out. And, and I, I just, I love the business. It's a great product. I can see it scaling. I can, I can see the model going elsewhere. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. 
Uh, I, th- there's a there's a software business that I am super excited about uh, in the states with a killer founder that I would love to talk about. I can't. Uh, <laughs> I went into about a month ago, um, but I you know uh, I guess what did I what did I do more recently? You know I I got involved in backing Gumroad, uh, which you know I know a bunch of people got in on that deal, but, but I yeah, I think I talk about that because I think that's. That's a heck of a company what Sahel is building with that. I think they're a real juggernaut. You know, the valuation went up very quickly. But yeah, I, I just I just think that, that he's capable of doing a lot with that business. I, I think it's really underrated, underrecognized. I think enabling creators to easily monetize their work is an absolute no-brainer. And they have so much low-hanging fruit. I mean, the business that I'm that I'm doing now, in in some ways, helps uh, creators, and you know, is is adjacent to that space. And I really see it like there's so much stuff that hasn't been done. So I, th- I think Gumroad's got a got a pretty bright future. Do you think? Do you think you're you're this bullish about Gumroad just because of the timing that you know the the creator economy is is massive, of course, right now, and there's a lot of startups heading into it. But Gumroad's been around for. I think a, a pretty long time. And do you think it's because they have these deep roots that they are going to be the ones that weather any sort of storm that comes along? I think I think staying power mm-hmm. speaks volumes for businesses and, and for entrepreneurs. Uh, you know that they haven't they haven't benefited maybe in the way that Stripe have more broadly from sticking at providing a service. And see, Stripe is a, is, a, is a cracking business, uh, and Gumroad's. Uh, you know, is in a different space, but yeah, I I do think there's lasting value there. I I, I think there's, you know, I mean, maybe it's pandemic driven, but we've seen a lot of kind of reporting on millennials and Gen Z quitting their jobs and trying to strike out and do their own thing. And you can be quite cynical about that and be like, oh yeah, they they're going to have to end up at the corporate teat with a job. But I think I think these people are. Are quite different. I think there's a generational change. I think the world is changing. Behaviors are changing. I think people will be more interested in doing their own thing or having side hustles. I think some of the platforms that they're working on now will change and, and exactly what they're doing will change. But I think generally speaking, if you're providing tools that people could use to empower themselves financially or otherwise, I yeah, I'm, I'm very bullish on that. I, I, I think that's a good thing to get behind. And to me, been, that's part of work. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, Mo's been using a number of tools to help monetize his OnlyFans with the pandemic and all, uh, <laughs> and he's also he's also helped. Uh, uh, well, you proofread Sahil's book, didn't you? I did. Yeah, yeah. So, so Sahil came out with a book called um, "It's Right There on My Shelf," actually, "The Minimalist Entrepreneur," and it basically talks about how you know, in in his initial, uh, at least in, in the beta read that I did for for the first chapter. Uh, he talks about how he initially had the vision of Gumroad becoming or solving this global issue of we want to help every single creator all around the world and every single person generally just being this massive consumer product and had millions thrown into the business only for it to kind of stagnate after a while. And his whole vision of being this billionaire CEO and everything kind of fizzled out as as the company's, company's numbers started to plateau. Um, but then the main realization he had was basically that... Um, the product wasn't solving things on a massive global scale, but it was mattering a lot to a very tiny community. And he decided that that's what he needed to focus on. And I, I love the idea because it's just, it's minimalist. It's 
you don't need to build the next Facebook or Twitter or, or, or anything like that. If, if you build something that small, it also, it's, it's like a, it's a pillar in YC of like build something that matters a lot to a small amount of people instead of something that matters a little to a lot of people. Um, I, I really hope people in, you know, these, these young people that kind of, kind of like my age that head into the founder startup like space start to follow that because that's what we're, that's what's been working basically or that's what's been presenting the most value i think and i think you know i'm my startup abstract is in the gov tech space so it's a very stagnant industry and there's you know your usual collection of whales that you know are not willing to change or do much so when we head in there we're trying to matter a lot to a tiny community initially and then we figure out about an expansion process or something and yeah it, it just it makes the journey a bit more fun i think that's that's the point i'm trying to get to I'm I'm going to fork that thought a little bit, and Aiden, I'd love to hear your input on it. So, um, you know, now that we're talking about minimalist entrepreneurs, so Sahil has been talking about it quite a bit on Twitter, and then there's also Andrew Gazdecki of MicroAcquire who's been talking about that yeah. quite a bit on Twitter. Um, uh, Aiden, in a blog post, you mentioned your interest in bootstrapping. Um, hmm. So I just wanted to ask, like, what is the appeal to you of bootstrapping versus raising venture capital, and what's the? I mean, is it a matter of you know retaining control? Uh, just keeping VCs off the board? Is it a financial thing? Do you want you know a, a, a larger piece of a smaller pie? Um, what is the main argument for bootstrapping? Well, I've been boot, I, I suppose I, I've been, I would call it building an indie software company for about 10 years now. And prior to that, I did raise angel money and VC money and PE money in different companies uh, and indeed sold a number of them. And there are a number of things investors can provide, but it is quite difficult to find a good one. And it is, it can be quite, you know, if, 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 if you're a regular Joe entrepreneur, you know, not everyone's necessarily going to be raising money from, uh, say, Andreessen or Sequoia. But I think w- what I saw in, in general was when things were going very well, the investors weren't that helpful. And when things weren't going well, they tended not to be around or they tended to be unhelpful. And if you're 21 or 22, I can see the sort of desire and motivation to say, hi, hey, you know, I'm going to build a billion, $10 billion business or get nothing. That's, that's the plan. I'm going, to, I'm going to do it. You know, it's going to be go big or go home. And I think maybe as you get older, your attitude towards that changes and, and you appreciate the optionality. I, I think there, there are a number of factors in it for me. I mean, you know, the, the previous business I was building was very successful and that was great. But I really came to think about the environment that I wanted to work in and the people that I wanted to work with and the guiding principles for what it was that we did. And sometimes pursuit of growth at all costs gets in the way of those principles. I didn't, for instance, like it when the director for the investors was, okay, we've got to put 50 software engineers in in the next six months and you just got to go out and get bums on seats, as it were. So I found myself in a position wanting to be just much more kind of deliberate and careful about the environment that I was building, because I'm not on a mad burnout rush to try and pull off some one in a million or one in a billion chance. I want to build a a sustainable business uh, loved by its users and customers uh, with a staff, my colleagues enjoy working 
and you know we learn and develop together and we're not sort of doing any harm to the environment or society and you know that not everyone not everyone relates to that right but that's something that that fits for me i, I don't think it's a lack of ambition per se it's just that there are other things that are more important to me and as someone who invests uh, in venture on the side i think it's quite a, an unusual position for me to be in because you know there there are entrepreneurs that i would counsel maybe maybe not to raise money i i think you know if if you f- find that it's quite easy to get to uh, a couple of million bucks in arr and you can do that without venture backing then the decision to take venture becomes harder because you lose the optionality you know if 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 you can do that journey up to 20 50 million arr those businesses chuck off a lot of cash you can have a very happy existence and if you have a 20 million or 50 million arr business that will make you much wealthier probably than a lot of entrepreneurs that sell for say 500 750 million and you get to keep on doing what you love doing every day which is building your business uh, and, and delighting users so yeah i i think i think there's a there's a real kind of culture around that really big exit and and i think once you get behind closed doors and speak in confidence with founders about what their relationship with their investors are like and what the financial consequences of an exit were like and what the you know also what they found themselves doing afterwards and how it affected their sense of identity yeah i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure it's all that it's cracked up to be uh i think as soon as this airs we're both getting kicked off the index like <laughs> <laughs> well you know i i am a uh, yeah i'm a, a minority <laughs> in, i mean there are other in, I mean I'm I'm kidding of course but I mean one point I definitely agree with is like investors do sometimes tend to be useless when you need them. So I have to ask and I do ask a lot of a lot of investors this. Um what is the most memorable example of you helping put out a fire at a startup that you invested in? I suppose that would be uh lending them a software engineer. <laughs> but they were desperate for engineering resources. Uh, it was sending one of our lead engineers their way for uh well i guess about two months and helping them to to find one which which i i i got to say i'm not sure i would do that again <laughs> that that was a that was a big deal but it it really helped them but uh yeah you you then got to wean them off uh you then got to wean them off the help you give them funny story is i actually had a portfolio company that needed an engineer and i literally gave them mo as an intern for the summer i actually literally did that <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. But hey, uh, that, I, I guess that was kind of mutually beneficial because they they got my contribution and then I kind of took that knowledge of engineering and spun it into and that's like the the funny thing about my my place because I went from intern to student back when I went back to college to starting this. So I guess it worked out for everyone, right? Right? Happy days. Happy days. Yeah, yeah I think I think I think I might like some uh, 308 Catholic could be quite handy. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I give you my siblings that's how much I care for my portfolio startups. I give you my I blood. <laughs> I love you see it's a, it's a different pitch it's a refreshing pitch. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh. Interesting. Oh man. It's um man I think wow we actually at time which is unfortunate. Um Aiden I mean it, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Uh I think the, the best part of doing this podcast is talking to people in ecosystems that I am 
too far away from to like feel the pulse of. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, please don't break into my iPhone. And if you do, those pictures aren't mine. Um, <laughs> of, of course not. The money, just like the money, which is which is just resting in your account. Absolutely. I, I understand. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak. Uh, is Mo. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, likewise. Absolutely.